Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I guess turn to the book of Proverbs, though I'm really going to be all over the place. A few months ago, the elders, knowing that uh, where our treasure is, there our heart is, asked me at some time uh, to preach two weeks on finances, and so I decided I would do it partway through my Colossians series, so I'll do that this week and next week. I figure it'll be empty next week. Um, hopefully not. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about finances, so we're going to do that today and next week. Let's uh, pray. Oh, by the way, before we do, you're, you might be saying, oh, we might be behind on budget. That's why we're doing that. Uh, that is not correct. We are not behind on budget. This just is a hard issue. How we think about finances the whole breadth of it is a hard issue. So it's not really about what we are bringing or not bringing in. Now I'll pray. <laughs> Father God, uh, guide our time, we ask. Allow us to talk about wealth and work, debt and generosity, all for your glory. Allow us to talk about that this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I've already told you that I'm talking about money. And probably a few of you thought, wow, doesn't he know that there are three things polite people don't talk about? They don't talk about religion. They don't talk about politics. They don't talk about money. And I'll be honest, I'm going to be 0 for 3 this morning. It's just kind of the way it is. But as we talk about money, I want us to understand that the Bible is not pejorative, it's not negative towards money. Money is morally neutral. Possessions are morally neutral. The problem becomes when we confuse the creator and the creation. The problem happens when we take the creation and put it on the altar of our lives and it becomes an all-consuming passion to get a little bit more, to have a little bit better, to always want one more thing. Money is morally neutral. Possessions are morally neutral. The Bible has poor people who are godly. It is rich people who are godly. You think of Job or Abraham or David. They're incredibly rich. And yet they were very godly for the most part, especially Job. Job communed with God in a way that very few have. And yet he had abundance, then he had nothing, and then he had abundance again. And in every state he was able to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how God wants you and I to understand money. I think one of the reasons some in the church believe that money is negative is because of a translation mistake made several centuries ago in a version of the Bible that is still read today. 
in 1 Timothy 6.10, this rather famous translation reads as follows, the love of money is the root of all evil, and it made it articulate. But that's not how the Bible actually reads. It says the love of money is a root of all evil. There's a profound difference between the root and a root. A root means that if we pursue money in the wrong way, with greed, always with an eye of, I need a little bit more before I'm happy, if we're never satisfied, then that is indeed evil. But if that verse is articulate, the love of money is the root of all evil, you would have to understand that every evil ever committed at its root goes back to money. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, money is morally neutral. Possessions are morally neutral. Pursuing them is okay, as long as they don't become our God, as long as they're not on the altar of our lives. I wanna illustrate the problem with money this way. It's kind of a silly illustration. Arabella is four years old. And Arabella's parents took her to the Shrine of the Golden Arches. <laughs> and there was a menu, and the menu was a picture menu, and she saw a Happy Meal. Now talk about a brilliant advertising strategy. The Happy Meal, the guarantee of happiness. And Arabella, at age four, declared, I want a Happy Meal. I mean, who wouldn't? a burger, a fries, a Coke, a beautifully orchestrated box, and a toy. Yesterday, we happened to have our five-year-old and almost two-year-old grandson and Betty Ann brought him home something from the Shrine of the Golden Arches, Happy Meals, and they love it. And so Arabella loves it, and she said, I want a Happy Meal, and mom said no. Arabella, you're not having a happy meal. I know what's going to happen. You're going to have three bites of your hamburger, two fries, three sips of Coke. You're going to play with your toy for 90 seconds. It'll be on the carpet. Your father is going to step on it and say a word that he should not say. That's what's going to happen. And I had to laugh yesterday because the happy meal toys ended up on the carpet. And Betty Ann stepped on it and said, no, that's not really what happened. <laughs> She's in Weston playing the piano, so I can say that. <laughs> Somebody there is preaching my sermon. She won't even see the video. <laughs> Let's keep it between you and me. So Arabella is four years old, and she doesn't get a happy meal, and she says to mom and dad, it's all I've ever wanted. I will be happy if I have a happy meal. And mom and dad explain that that is not true. It doesn't bring happiness. It doesn't bring lasting happiness. It's fleeting. And we know this. We're articulate enough to know that a happy meal doesn't bring happiness. We know this. But I'll tell you what does bring happiness. The Stealth Plus 2 Driver by TaylorMade. I play with like almost two decade-year-old golf clubs. And I know. I know if I have that stealth too, I will be able to out hit Chris over here by 30 yards. I know it. 
Right now he outhits me, but if I have this tailor-made club, my ball is going to go sailing by and I will be happy. And we're, we're trapped this way, aren't we? Maybe a newer car or a bigger house or, and we fill in the blank and it's not wrong to want things. It's not wrong to pursue possessions as long as they don't become the driving force of our life, as long as we remember who the creator is and who the create or what the creation is. But sometimes we take that creation and we put it on the altar of our lives and it becomes all consuming and we want it beyond all else. Let me read 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, the way it's actually written. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Why? Listen to this. It is through this craving. Why is it a root of some kinds of evil? Because we crave, we become consumed. We make the creation into the creator. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I don't think this is talking about a loss of salvation. In fact, in light of 1 Timothy, it couldn't be talking about a loss of salvation. What it's saying is that God-fearing, God-honoring Christians sometimes realign our lives in such a way that we convince ourselves, if we just had this, I'll be happy. If we just had that, I'll be happy. And it becomes an all-consuming pursuit of more and more and more. And we're never satisfied. And we're wandering away from what God desires. And when that happens, the clear solution is more God. More Bible, more worship, less control of possessions, and more open hands. As you and I think about possessions, we're going to make four points. I've already made the first one. And that is money and possessions are morally neutral. Don't confuse the creator with the creation. The next three points are these. God designed us to work hard to provide for ourselves. God designed us to never be controlled by the lender. And God designed us to be generous individuals who understand that we are stewards, we are not owners. Let's start with the first one. God designed us to work hard. That's how you were created. You, I, we were created to be hard workers. I want to read just a smattering of verses, two Proverbs, and then something from Colossians, and then 2 Thessalonians. So I'm going to be in Proverbs 10, verse 4. It says this. A slack hand, that is a lazy hand, causes poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Then Proverbs 14, 23. In all toil there is a profit. But mere talk tends only to poverty. Now both of these are Proverbs. We have to understand what Proverbs are. Proverbs are general truths, general maxims. Can we find some of these things not working? Yes. Proverbs are not promises. They're proverbs. They generally happen. And generally what it's saying is, if you and I are lazy, we're going to have less. If we're diligent, we're going to have more. We know that's true, and the Proverbs affirm it. 
Listen to Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily at it. Not unto men, but as unto the Lord. In other words, whatever job you're at, whatever job you're in, it's in the home, it's in the factory, it's in a corporation, it's self-employed. Whatever you and I are in, involved in, whether it's entry level or at the highest of levels, ultimately we are working for God. It's not that I'm going to stand in front of my employer and worry about losing a job. It's that I'm going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, not one of condemnation for a believer, Romans 8.1, but one in which our lives are evaluated, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. How have we built our lives? And God's gonna say, how did you do where you worked? Did you work only for a paycheck? Did you work only for a corporation? Did you work only for an employer? Or did you work heartily unto me? Did you bring glory to me as my people by how you worked? That's what the text is saying. We're working ultimately for the Lord. And then 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Paul makes a remarkable statement. He said, while we were with you, we gave you this command. If you do not work, you don't get to eat. Whoa. Now, I think that would revolutionize the welfare system in the United States. If you don't work, you don't get to eat. Now, the text is not saying that God is against welfare. You can't read the Bible that way. You need nuance. You read the book of Ruth, and they left the edges of the fields so that the impoverished could come and glean and feed themselves you read in Acts chapter 6 in the New Testament, the kupa, which is like a benevolent fund that the, the deacons would distribute to the Hebraic and the Grecian widows. The Bible is not against welfare. For those who work hard, but maybe because of physical limitations or mental limitations or geographic limitations are unable to provide for all of one's needs, then the Bible says that God's people will stand in the gap and be generous. But what the Bible does say is if you are an able-bodied individual and you live in a land of possibilities, you should not rely on the government for government handouts. You should not be an individual who thinks the lottery is the key to one's future success. If you are a young adult, you should not believe that mom and dad are to provide for you indefinitely. If you do not work, you shall not eat. Why? Because you and I are to be imitators of God. And God is a working God, is he not? If you read the Genesis accounts, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. He works six days and then rests. God continues to work. God continues to create. He continues to sustain. God is a working God. And as imitators of God, we are to be hard workers. Now, if we were to take the time, we won't today, but if we were to take the time and read through Proverbs, 
we would discover 14 times that the book of Proverbs contrasts those who are industrious and hardworking with gluttons. The word is sluggards. 14 times we are told, don't be a sluggard. Never once is a kind word said of a sluggard. A sluggard sleeps too much, works too little, and relies upon others to provide for their needs. 14 times we're told, don't be a sluggard. If you're a teenager, don't be a sluggard at home. If you're a preteen, don't be a sluggard. If you're 20s or 80s or anything in between or over that, don't be a sluggard. God disdains, he dislikes when those he has equipped are sluggards. We are not called to be sluggards. We are called to be industrious. Now let me put it into language that makes sense to a pastor. Upon occasion, I'm asked to speak to other staffs. Sometimes I'm just invited to come talk to the staff or uh, occasionally I've done it at conferences and they want to know something about the work environment. And I always give a little talk about working heartily under the Lord rather than under men. You all pay me, thank you. But ultimately I work for the Lord. So do you, no matter where you work, you work for the Lord. So when I talk to these staffs, inevitably, uh, I'll have someone who says, I'm going to balance my life, and I love that, that's good, and I'm not going to work more than 40 hours because I'm going to be home, and that's all I can do to keep my mouth shut for a few moments. It makes me so angry. I'm going to work 40 hours. I stand in front of people who work a lot more than 40 hours. And then you go to church, and I call that work. And then you volunteer, and I call that work. In other words, I've got to work the hours that you all work, and worship, and volunteer at a minimum. Right? Because otherwise, I'm a sluggard. I'm lazy. And that's true in your environments as well. Whatever environment God's put you in, you work heartily under the Lord. Maybe the boss doesn't see the shortcuts you can take, but you won't take them because you're working for the Lord. You're not going to come in late and leave early and cut corners because you're working for the Lord. There will be balance in your life and you will care for your family, but, but you're also working heartily unto the Lord. We serve a God who worked. Some people say, well, work is, that's the result of the fall. That's a poor reading of Genesis 1 and 2. Before the fall, we have work. Adam names the animals he cares for the gardens with Eve. God creates and God sustains. What the fall did is make work more difficult, less pleasant. Childbirth became more difficult and, and also the thorns grew into the grounds, making farming more difficult. So work became less pleasant, but work is pre-fall. And God designed you and he designed me to work 
to provide for our families, and to be generous with others. So, so far, I want to remember that money and possessions are morally neutral. I don't ever want to confuse the creator who ought to be on the altar of my life with the creation. And I shouldn't live always wanting one more thing, even though it's okay to desire some things. It's got to be a, a lower level desire. I'm worshiping God, not the creation. The second thing I want to remember is God created me to provide for my family. He created me for work. And he created you. The third thing is he didn't create any of us with the desire that we be a slave to the lender. He wants us to live within our means. Let me read from Proverbs 22, the seventh verse. It says this. Notice the parallelism. There's a lot of parallelism in Proverbs. You're going to hear it. The first line reflects on the next two. The rich rules over the poor. Bad, right? And the borrower is the slave of the lender. Bad. You have parallelism. It's bad that the rich rules, that's a negative word, controls the poor. And it's bad that we borrow and are controlled by the lender. That is, borrow more than we ought to borrow. Now, their nuance is needed. Nuance is always needed in the Bible. The Bible is not saying that all loans are wrong. It's not saying that all mortgages are wrong. If it were saying that, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 would make no sense. If it were saying that, Deuteronomy 15, which tells believers to be generous and loan to other believers, that would be nonsensical. Even what I read in Proverbs 22, 7 would be nonsensical if all loans are always wrong. But what the Bible is saying is this. Live in such a way that you are not controlled by the lender. Live in such a way that you delay gratification and don't have a, I've got to have it now, and so I'm going to buy it on credit, and I'll worry about paying it later. One of my dad's favorite passages is Proverbs 6. I've taught from it twice since I've been at Highland. It's about the ant. My dad uh, is a pretty educated guy, and uh, all of his degrees are in finance, and so he would manage portfolios, for others, and he can't stand the idea of people being controlled by the lender. So he would read this to us. He thinks I have it memorized, I don't. <laughs> Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. One of the 14 times we have sluggard, always bad. In other words, sluggard, start looking at the ant, learn from the ant. Consider her, the ant's ways, and be wise. If you want to be wise, be like the ant. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, the ant prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Think about the ant. Lots of picnics to crash, not particularly today, maybe later on in the week. But you think about an ant 
An ant can gorge itself at a picnic, but it doesn't. It doesn't live with immediate gratification. Instead, an ant eats a little bit, and then you see him marching along with your lunch down into a hole. It's taking your lunch down into the hole during the summer and the fall to prepare for the winter so that it can survive. It delays gratification. And the Bible is saying we were not designed to be sluggards. We were designed by God to be ants. We were designed by God to be wise, to delay gratification, to save for the future, to plan well for what's coming along. Now, I want to compare this with how America lives. If this is a typical room, if this is a typical room, 35% of us do not pay off our credit card every single month. One out of three in this room carry a balance. The average American carries a balance of $1,000 or pays $1,000 of interest. But remember, only a third of Americans actually carry a balance. So if you're carrying a balance from month to month, you're actually probably paying not $1,000, but $3,000 in interest a year. That would be the average for someone who does not pay off their credit card. What could you do with $3,000 if you weren't giving it to the lender? If you weren't a slave to the lender, how could you live if you didn't pay $3,000 in interest every single year? Well, you're already in a bind. If you don't control your credit cards, cut them up, flush them down the toilet, figure out which is the highest interest rate. It's probably somewhere between 18 and 27%. Figure out the highest interest rate, pay it off quickly, then the next, the next. And you can live at a higher standard of living than if you are a slave to the lender. Many, not all, many are in credit card debt because we have a, I've got to have it now. I've got to have the boat now. I've got to have the trailer now. I've got to have whatever now rather than saving and buying with cash. We do the same thing with car loans. If you're going to need a car in five years, why not pay yourself for five years every month and then go buy the car with cash? Why would you wait five years, then go borrow and pay someone else for the next five years? Why would you live at a lower standard of living when you, I, we don't have to? Delayed gratification. If this is a typical room, the average adult in this room owes $100,000. That would be mortgage and car loan and credit card. Or if you're married, it would be $170,000. Obviously, that goes up and down depending on one's ability to pay. If it's $170,000, you're balancing probably in the neighborhood of $1,250 a month, maybe more, maybe less. That would be $15,000 a year. If you paid ahead on your mortgage and got out of it, you could live with $15,000 more a year than you are presently living with. How would that change your ability to minister to your family, 
to the kingdom or otherwise. I'm well aware that in our building years, very few are able to just pluck down all the money and buy a mortgage, pay, pay a house, not have a mortgage. I realize that. But we can all pay ahead. Very few loans have penalties. Some do, but most do not. To pay ahead, and you can add a few hundred dollars every month and get out of your mortgage many years earlier with a lot less interest paid. We're not designed to be a slave to the lender. Mortgages aren't sinful. They're not. But when we can get out of them quicker, that's wise. And we ought to push for that. My next statement is not political. It may sound that way. It's not. But we're in trouble as a country. We are in utter trouble as a country. We print money. We leverage our debt with bonds. And we have no plan to get ourselves out of unbelievable debt. Numbers that most of us can't even fathom. We're in trouble as a country. And unfortunately, we imitate that as Christ followers. But I think it's worse than that. I think we have taught the next generations that we get what we want right when we want it. We don't delay gratification. I want a boat. I will buy a boat now. I will mortgage it or I will leverage it later. I want a camper. I will buy it today. I'll figure out how to pay it tomorrow. Not only is that our national way, but it's our own way. And it spills over into other areas of life. It really does. So we're teaching younger people, I get what I want when I want it. And God says in intimacy, it's only between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. But we model, I get what I want when I want it. And so we have all sorts of individuals in the church and outside the church living outside of God's intent for sexual intimacy. Why? Because we don't have the discipline of delayed gratification. I don't know if you read it, but uh, Brigham Young released a scholastic study this week. Not a Christian study. It's a secular study. It's amazing. Virgins at the altar... Four out of five of them, decades later, are satisfied with their marriage. 80%. The more promiscuous one is prior to one's marriage, the less satisfaction one will have in marriage or the multiple marriages that one will have. Brigham Young just released that. It's not a sacred study. It's a secular study saying delayed gratification pays dividends. So what happens if you have been immoral? You confess, you agree with God, you repent, and you ask God forgiveness, and then you start doing it God's way because we serve a God of incredible grace. Delayed gratification is a biblical principle and it's taught by the ant. So far, We see that money and possessions are morally neutral. We never want to confuse the creator with the creation. We might want something, but we want God more. And if we don't want God more, 
the antidote is to spend more time in worship and prayer and Bible study so that we desire him more. We were not desired to be lazy. We're not to be sluggards. We're to be hardworking, not to live off the dole. You and I are not designed to be a slave to the lender, but to find financial freedom and to delay gratification. And finally, we are desired, designed to be generous people, to understand that we are not owners. You and I are stewards. I just want to look at three passages with us. Proverbs 19, 17a. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. God created us to be generous individuals, to understand that what he has entrusted to us, we are stewards of, and we're to be generous to the poor. That's why we have a benevolent fund. It's why we have feed our starving children. And because of several lay people, we'll have it again, November 3rd and 4th, where we're going to try and package many tens of thousands of dollars of food to go to a third world country to help people who have need. Last summer, when uh, the youth were down in the Dominican Republic, there was a, a semi that was brought onto the compound where they were, and we opened it up, and there was all these food from Feed My Starving Children, boxes and boxes and boxes, and we had the privilege of unloading this, and then actually saw some of it distributed to individuals. God designed us to hold loosely what he has entrusted to us. And when we do so, God blesses us. Listen to Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters, he himself will be watered. In other words, God says, if you hold loosely what I've entrusted to you and you use it in ways that honor me, I'm going to give you more. Maybe temporally, maybe eternally, maybe financially, maybe in terms of good health or good relationships or it'll keep calamity from us that might have struck us. I don't know what it is, but God says, if we do with what he has entrusted to us, how he desires us to do with it, then he will bring blessing into our life. And finally, one last passage. It's Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. I'll conclude with this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You say, ah, oh, you finally got to that given thing. I knew you'd get there. <laughs> I will next week. But I want to tell you that I'm going to talk right now, not as a pastor. I just believe this as a person. Betty Ann and I both grew up in Christian homes. I saw my dad manage portfolios. And he had a portfolio for the Lord, which always did better than his own portfolio. Always. And I saw my parents give the first fruits of their income. Always. And before I was 10, working on a farm... My parents taught me to give the first fruits of my income to the Lord. Betty Ann observed the same thing with her parents. None of them are wealthy. My parents are a little more wealthy than Betty Ann's, but none of them are wealthy. But none of us 
have ever wanted. God has provided for us. So we have seen this live out in our lives, not to make a budget, but to honor the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, you say a lot about finances. And it's what we need. It's not by accident you give us 2,000 plus passages that touch on finances because obviously what we do with our treasures reveals our hearts. So Father, help us to live in such a way that we honor you. That you are always on the throne rather than your creation. Always. That we're not always panting after one more thing, craving for the next thing, but satisfied in you. Help us to be the best employees at home, at work, in our community. Help us to be wise, and if we're in debt, to work to get out of it, to delay gratification in every area of our lives, to be disciplined. And Father, not to see ourselves as owners, but stewards, and to steward what you have entrusted to us in a God-honoring way. Help us to see finances as you see them. For our betterment and your glory, in the name of Christ we pray, amen.